Today is part three of our four-part series entitled, The Story of No. And we've been approaching the Christmas story from this perspective, that the Christmas story revolves around four no's that God transformed into yeses. And the concept is simple, that all of us experience no's in our lives. And that God is able to take those no's and transform them into a yes that changes everything. I'm going to draw your attention to a passage of scripture this morning in Luke chapter 2, just two verses. Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And this is what it says. So it was that while they were there, the days for her to be delivered were complete. Or the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father, we ask you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to speak to us by the power of your word and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we talked about the fact that there was no time. The week before that, we talked about the fact that there was no way. Joseph finds out that the love of his life is pregnant with somebody else's baby, and he says, no way. God gives him revelation in the night. Joseph, you thought I wasn't in this, but I'm in this. And Joseph wakes up in the morning, and his no way becomes a yes, Lord. That's the beginning of the story. Now they're married, and Mary is in the third trimester of her pregnancy, but before she could give birth to the child, there's no time. Caesar Augustus makes this decree. They have to make this 70 to 90 mile journey to Nazareth. Uh, they have to cross the Jordan River twice. We talked about that last Sunday. And there's no time. And God transforms that no time into the appointed time. God transforms that wrong time, which seems to, to us to be the wrong time, to God, it's the appointed time. And, and suddenly they find themselves in the right place, accidentally in the right place, to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill the plan of God for their lives. How many know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him or the called according to his purpose? That means that oftentimes God will use the trials and tribulations that you walk through in life to position you perfectly to fulfill his will for your life. So a lot of times we're scared that we're not going to fulfill the will of God for our lives. You don't have to worry about not fulfilling the will of God for your life. All you have to worry about is making sure that your heart is in the right place, that your heart is submitted to God, and that your desire is to do everything that you know to fulfill the will of God for your life, and God will take care of the rest. If you need to be in another city, God will get you to that city. Amen? Today, now, there's a great problem because the story should have ended right there. They get to Bethlehem, which is where they needed to be. And now it's time for Mary to give birth to her child. But there's no room. There's no space. All the hotels in the city are filled. So they went from hotels to motels. All the motels in the city are filled. So he checked Airbnb. All the Airbnbs in the city are filled. He checked the shelters. All the shelters in the city are filled. He was probably so desperate, he was checking veterinary clinics, hospitals, everything he could. Everything is full. And now, Mary and Joseph are supposed to freeze to death in the street, and the story is supposed to end. But let me tell you that if God is able to change a no way into a yes, Lord, 
And if he's able to change the wrong time into the appointed time, then he's able to change no room into the right room. Amen. Now, here's the problem. Till now, Mary has been what the, the Eastern Church calls Christotokos. She's the Christ bearer. She's got the Christ on the inside of her. She's walking around with something that God has deposited on the inside of her, but now she's getting ready to become the Christ deliverer. Meaning what's on the inside of her, it's now time for it to come to the outside of her. Right? What's on the inside of her, it says, now while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. That is, there was an appointed time for what was on the inside of her to come to the outside of her. That it was an appointed time for her to be delivered where what God deposited in her would come out. But when it came time to be delivered, there was no space to deliver it into. There was no place. You know, a lot of you have experienced that and some of you are experiencing that right now. That God's put a great leader on the inside of you But when it comes time for that leader to come out, there's no place to lead. That God's put a preacher on the inside of you, but there's no place for that preacher to preach. Where God puts a great entrepreneur on the inside of you, but there's no place for that entrepreneur to start a business or start a company. And you're looking around and you're going, I know God's put this on the inside of me, but there's no place for this in the world. God's put a writer on the inside of you, but there's no place for that writer to write. God's put a musician on the inside of you, but ain't nobody trying to hear your music. There's no place for that musician on the inside of you. I believe that if I went around the room, every single person in this room would have something that you're aware of that's on the inside of you that ain't no place for on the outside. First and foremost, may I say to you that nothing that God puts on the inside of anyone has a space waiting for it on the outside. Wow. Okay. Can somebody say amen? Y'all too quiet today. I'm used to y'all talking back to me. So if you get quiet, the preacher's like, what's wrong? <laughs> There's never a place for what God's put on the inside of you. Not for you, not for me, not for anybody. Do you think I was born with a church just waiting for me to come in and pastor it? <laughs> This is the common experience of every individual. And what tends to happen is that when somebody actually comes, so Joseph and Mary are outside, they tried everybody and they tried everything and they tried every place and there was no place, there was no room. And somebody walks up to Joseph and goes, I got a place. It's not the best place, but it's a place. I mean, you can't let her go into labor and have this baby out here in in these streets. Not in these streets. Know what I'm saying? I got a place. It's not nice, but it's inside. I got a place. You're not going to like it, but it's not outside. And Joseph says, look, I don't care what it is. I'll take it. He's thinking maybe it's a hotel room without beds. Maybe it's a house where the heat doesn't work, but at least it's inside. And he says, okay, follow me. And he's, let's go, Mary. Come on, let's go. And when they come around the corner and they start walking toward this stable, Joseph had to rethink his yes. 
But he rethought it real quick. Because when you get desperate, you know you're really ready to fulfill the call of God to manifest the gift God's put on the inside of you when you stop caring about the place. You got a gift of a comedian? I ain't doing comedy no place unless they put me in Carnegie Hall. And I'm going to say no to every place until it's Carnegie Hall. You're a preacher? I'm not preaching nowhere except the platform at my church on Sunday morning. And unless they give me the pulpit on a Sunday morning, I ain't preaching nowhere. Guess what? You ain't preaching nowhere. You ain't doing comedy nowhere. You ain't singing nowhere. Unless they promote me at my company, I'm not leading anybody. Guess what? You ain't leading anybody. Because the majority of us go through a stage, at least a stage in our life, where we think we're greater than Jesus. Because the greatest ministry, the greatest leader, the greatest ruler, the greatest teacher, the greatest preacher, the greatest gift that was ever to be born in the world was getting ready to be born. And he didn't care where it was. He didn't care about the space. He wasn't ashamed to be born in a manger. You know you're ready to begin to bring forth the gifts that God has put on the inside of you when you don't care about the place anymore. You know you're ready when you don't care if I have to preach on street corners. I'll do comedy at birthday parties, bar mitzvah. I'll sing songs at a 13-year-old birthday party. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm ready. You know you're ready when you stop caring about the space, when you stop demanding for it to be a certain way. When you let go of that dream that's in your head that says it's got to be this way and it's got to look this way from the very start, when you stop demanding for your gift to be born in a palace, when you recognize that even the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords didn't demand for his gift to be born in a palace, I'll take the manger. All I need is a shovel. To get some stuff, you know, there's some, you know, there's, there's animals around there. There's animal stuff that needs to be moved out the way. That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do is just give me a shovel. Yeah. Sure. Give me a feeding trough and put some blankets in it. Yeah. I'm not going to demand anymore. I'm ready, God. I'm ready, God. I'm ready. I remember when I first looked at this building, I said, mm-mm, mm-mm. This building looked like a manger to me. It looked like a stable to me. This building didn't look the way it does today. It was dilapidated. It was run down. There was garbage in every closet. It was, it was, I was like, "Mm mm-mm. You know what I told him? I said, if we move our church to this building, we ain't going to have a church no more. That's what I told him. I said, no way. That's what I told the elders. That's what I told the trustees. That's what I told the staff. That's what I told my wife. And you know what we find when we say no to the manger? So we ain't got no vision. That when God gives you a manger, it's one of the greatest compliments he could give you. Because he's inviting you to dream with him. He's inviting you to dream with him of what this place might be. He's inviting you to see past the now and see the things to come. He's inviting you to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
Do you know how many revivals? You, you know the, the Azusa Street revival started in what used to be a stable for horses. And all they asked for was a broom and some stools and some, 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 uh, some seats. And they swept the place clean and they put out the seats and it became the greatest revival that the world had ever seen. But it started in a stable. It was like a manger. You know what? When you really think about it, God loves fixer uppers. He loves fixer uppers. You know, earlier this year, my wife told the story at the end of worship, beginning of 2021, right around January 1st, I called my bishop, Robert Daniels, and he said, Benjamin, you need a word from the Lord for your family for this year. Call me back when he gives it to you. So I went to prayer that night. Next day, I called him back. I said, the word the Lord gave me was space. And I believe the Lord is saying he's going to give us a new home with bigger space. And when I say space, I mean like half an acre of land. Like he's going to give us land. He's going to give us space. And Bishop Daniel said, oh, praise the Lord. That bears witness with my spirit. And then my wife comes in about a month later. I didn't say nothing to my wife because, you know, my wife is all about that action. If you don't know what the step is, don't tell her you got a vision without a step. Because that ain't, that ain't, it's a hallucination to her. <laughs> but the Lord gave her the step. I didn't even tell her the dream. A month later, she came in and said, the Lord says it's time for us to sell this house right now. I said, awesome, because the Lord told me he's going to give us a bigger house with space. So we sold our house. And I'm thinking at that time I was going to buy raw land. And I was going to build a brand new house on that raw land. And I was talking to my friend, my friend Jack, who's a, a real estate guy. He said, Benjamin, you don't want to do that. You really don't want to do that. Benjamin, it's at least a two-year process to buy raw land, to build a house on that land. You're going to be paying the mortgage on the property. You're going to be, it's going to be a nightmare. I'm telling you, you don't want to do that. He goes, what you want to do is you want to find an ugly house. He said, Benjamin, I love ugly houses. Ugly houses are wonderful. He said, I remember the first house I bought for my family. I went into this house. Everybody, everybody was touring the house, walking around the house going, ew, ew. He said, I was walking around smiling, going, oh, yes, yes. And he said, my wife and I walked out, and my wife said, this is the ugliest house I've ever seen. And I said, I know, isn't it beautiful? She said, no, it's not beautiful. He said, we are buying this house. She said, are you crazy? He said, you just watch. You just watch. He bought that house. He, refer he stripped that house down to the studs. He refurbished that house. He reorganized the layout of that house. He reconfigured the bedrooms of that house. He made spaces where there were no spaces. He put in new floors and new walls and new ceilings and, and new lights and new windows. And then he brought his wife in and said, now take a look at this house. And she said, oh my God, this is not the same house. He says, oh yes it is. If you had the vision that I had when I first walked in this house, you would see the house that we have right now. He said, Benjamin, you need to go find an ugly house, a house that everyone else will turn their nose up, a house that's been on the market for a minute because nobody wants to buy it, a house that other people would walk in and go, ooh, you walk in and go, ooh. He says, because if you can find the right ugly house that can be turned into a beautiful house with very little work, you found a gold mine, you found a gem. And suddenly I realized 
that if God didn't love ugly houses, none of us would be saved. Because God doesn't come looking around. I want to find the cleanest people I can find. Let me find the most moral people I can find. I want to find people who are already righteous and already holy. People who are already striving to please me. Those are the people that I'm going to save and, 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 and bring into my kingdom. People who deserve it. People who are already worthy of it. No, 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 no. Paul says to the Corinthians, consider your calling, brethren. That not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Yeah. Not many of you were mighty. Not many of you were noble. Yeah. But God chose the weak things of this world to confound the strong. Yeah. He chose the base things to confound the wise. And he chose the things that were not to nullify the things that are so that no flesh might glory in his presence. Yeah. Let me translate that into the NGT, the New Ghetto Translation. Yeah. Paul looked at the Corinthian church and says, don't you realize that none of you were very smart when God saved you? That y'all had all kinds of issues and sins in your life? Some of y'all were sleeping with people that wasn't your husbands or your wives. And some of y'all was living, you were stealing and stealing from one another and stealing from the government and lying and claw. You were doing all kinds of, of stuff. And God simply walked into your life and said, ooh, this is a beautiful house. Even when you were an ugly house, God looked at you and said, that's a beautiful house. And don't you know that God didn't, he didn't care about the condition you were in when you walked in the door. He didn't look at you and say, that's an ugly house. He looked at you and he said, I'm going to come into this house. I'm going to make it clean. God looked at your life and said, I don't need you to be clean when you come to me. I'm going to make you clean. I had a friend who was having dinner with some of his Muslim friends. And his Muslim friend said to him, you know, you're a good person. You're moral. You're upright. You know, you would qualify to be a Muslim. And my friend looked at him and said, thank you so much for that. But I've received a better offer. Because my Lord said to me, you don't have to qualify. I'm going to qualify you. You don't have to be clean. I'm going to cleanse you. And all of a sudden we realize that the fact that Christ was willing to be born in a manger, the fact that God was willing to allow his only son to be born in a manger was actually the gospel illustrated in this one little detail. That he comes into the dirty places and makes it the clean places. That he comes into the broken places and makes them the whole places. He comes into the darkness and turns it into light. Yes. Amen. That you don't have to fix yourself up before you come to him. Yeah. That you come to him just as you are. Yeah. And he fixes you up. Amen. Now watch this. She brings forth her firstborn son. And she wraps him in swaddling clothes. First thing you learn as a parent is how to swaddle your child. You know what it means to swaddle your child? It means to wrap them up so tight that they can't move. It means you determine the position that you want them in. 
And then you wrap them up in that position, nice and tight, nice and snug. And there are moments when your child fights the swaddling until it's time to sleep. When it's time to sleep, they realize this is the best position I could possibly be in. This is the most comfortable space that I could possibly be in. I'm going to rest. You know, we all go through seasons in life in which God swaddles us. First, he puts you in the manger. He puts you in the place that you don't want to be in. He puts you in that fixer-upper of a family. You know, that family you want to complain about, I wish it was better, and I wish mama wasn't so crazy, and I wish daddy wasn't so mean. I wish, you know, my brother wasn't so, you know, ghetto, and my sister, you know. Right? All the complaints about your family, your family is the manger that you were born in. And you've been complaining about it ever since. Some of you, you, you're, you're in a manger of a marriage. Your wife is off the hook. Your husband's out of control. Whatever it is, and you've been complaining about it. And then what God does, once you're born into that manger, then he swaddles you. Which means he wraps you up tight so you can't get out of there. Because if God hadn't swaddled you, you would have got, got out a long time ago. You would have run from your manger. But God says, I'm going to tie you up in the manger so you can't get out because this is my plan for your life. I put you in the right place. And your desire to escape is indicative of the fact that you don't actually trust God to put you in the right place. And God says, no, 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 no. You're going to struggle against the swaddling. But at the end of the day, when it's time for you to rest, you're going to get real comfortable. And you're going to realize, actually, this isn't such a bad place. My wife is crazy, but she she can be nice at certain, you know, she's got her moments. My husband is off the hook, but, you know, he does have some qualities. God could actually do something here. The swaddling is necessary because what the swaddling does is it keeps you and restricts you in a place where God has time to mature you. And as God matures you, he begins to give you vision that you didn't have. He begins to show you sides of things that you didn't have. You see, all of us have come to the end of our rope at some point and at some place. And all of a sudden you discover, I wanted to get out, but I couldn't get out because God swaddled me. God wrapped me up tight. He wouldn't let me move. She swaddled him. And then she laid him. First she delivered him. And then she swallowed him. And then she laid him in a manger. And that's the hardest place. I wish God would swaddle me and hold me. And rock me 24-7. I don't know about you, but my baby, when she was a baby, I still call her my baby girl. She's like, Dad, you can't be calling me baby girl. I'm 12 years old. I'm like, even when you're 45 years old, you're still going to be my baby girl. I'm going to call you baby girl for the rest of your life, so you just get used to it. Give me 70 years old, I'll be like, baby girl. (laughs) Come here, baby girl. (laughs) And she smiled. I know you like it. She wanted to be held 24-7, 365 when she was a baby. Now, God has much more patience than me. Sometimes I laid her down because I had to. I didn't have no choice. 
You think a baby is light until you have to hold one for hours. And all of a sudden, your muscles are giving out. You got cramps in your muscles. You've been holding that baby and rocking that baby. And she had to be rocked aggressively. <laughs> Sometimes I rocked her so aggressively, I got scared for a second. Say, said, oh, Lord, is she? You know, because you see those signs, don't shake a baby.com, you know? <laughs> it's like, did I just, what, how, what's the definition of shake? Because <laughs> she demands to be, you know, she wouldn't stop crying until you just... <laughs> <laughs> but at a certain point I would lay her down the psalmist said he makes me to lie down in green pastures now that sounds like a peaceful scene but you must keep in mind that when God lays you down he's no longer holding you see if he wasn't going to lay you down he wouldn't need to tie you up did you hear that? He lays you down. He's no longer holding you, which means that in that moment, he stepped out of the room. And you are disconnected at that moment from his manifest presence. What that means is when a mother is holding a child, the child experiences the manifest love of mommy. The child senses is aware of the physical presence of mommy. But when mommy lays that child down and steps out of the room and the child wakes up and mommy's not there, the child always screams. Because the child is worried that mommy's gone forever. And if the child is not swaddled tightly at that point, the child will roll out of control and then you got to put them in a crib with sides to it or they'll roll out of the crib. The child will hurt themselves if they're not swaddled. And so at the end of the day, you've swaddled that child for their own good, but you've also stepped out of the room because if mommy holds the child 24-7, 365, the child becomes overly dependent upon the physical presence of mommy and never grows up and becomes an individual. Yeah. The child has to experience the absence of mommy's physical presence so that the child can learn to hold mommy in the heart. See, my daughter's 12. She wakes up and I'm not in the room. Mommy's not in the room. She doesn't cry anymore. Matter of fact, now it's the opposite. She tells us to get out of her room. Bye. Because she's developed what's called object constancy. Object constancy is the mark of maturity. Yeah. It is the ability to maintain a sense of the presence of one who loves you even in their physical absence. God swaddles you and then lays you down and steps away because you have to experience that moment where you feel like he's gone so that you can learn to hold on to his presence even when he's not holding you. And that is the definition of what the Bible calls faith. Faith is object constancy. It means he swallowed me and laid me down. I don't feel his presence, but I know his presence. I don't feel his love, but I know his love. I don't sense his glory, but I know his glory. I see the problem, but I, feel, I know his love. I know that my redeemer lives. And when you, dis, when you develop object constancy, you become steadfast and immovable. It means come hell or hot water. I know that my redeemer lives and I will stand with him on that day. 
Amen. Amen. Let me tell you something. God knew exactly what he was doing when he put you where you are. And in your life, you've, you've probably experienced many mangers. And God put you in every one of them. Not because that was his plan for the future of your life, but because he is inviting you to dream with him. Dream with me. Come look around and dream with me. You know, people have already been asking me, can I get a half acre? No. Can I put my little house? Mm-mm. Somebody said to me yesterday, why don't you rent out some of that space? No. Well, what are you going to do with it? I don't know yet. Well, if you don't know what you're going to do with it, why don't you rent some? Because I know I'm going to do something with it. But I've got space. And space means that all I need is the time to walk with God until he reveals to me what he wants to do with all of that space. Abraham, I want you to walk through the promised land. I want you to walk the length of it. Everything that your eyes will see, every place where the soles of your feet touch, I'm giving it to you and your descendants. You might not know what to do with it yet, but I'm going to show you what to do with it. You might not know what to do with your family yet, but I'm going to show you what I'm going to do with your family. You might not know what to do in your marriage. I'm going to show you what to do in your marriage. You might not know what to do with your education. I'm going to show you. And our experience of hopelessness transpires at the very place where God sets us in the midst of a manger. We just can't see what he's going to do with it yet. And when you find yourself in that place, here's how you comfort yourself. God, I can't see it, but you can see it. I don't have a vision for this yet, but you've got a vision. And Lord, as long as I know that you see that darkness and light are alike to you, that the darkness cannot hide from you, but the night shines as the day, that I can't go anywhere from your presence, as long as I know that you're with me and that you can see the end from the beginning, I'm going to rejoice because any moment now, God's going to show me what he's about to do. Any moment. Don't run from your manger. Don't say no to your manger. Don't struggle to escape your manger. And now we look back all these years later at that manger. And to us, it's not an ugly place anymore. To us, it's not a dirty place anymore. We depict it on platforms, on churches all over the world. We sing songs about that manger. Away in a manger, no room for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The fact that Christ was born in that place immediately transformed it into a thing of beauty. Wherever you are, that's where Christ is, living in you transforming your manger into a place of beauty. Bow your heads and let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we love you today. And we thank you 
that you are with each and every one of your sons and daughters. Lord, there's some of us here today that feel like we're in that manger right now. It's so hard for us to embrace it. So hard for me to look at this dirt-filled, dung-filled, hay-filled place and see it as you see it. A place filled with light. A place filled with hope. A place that will be looked upon for the generations to come as a beacon of hope and of light and of love. I pray today that you'd give us vision and that you'd give us faith and that you'd give us hope and that you would drive out the despair that the enemy would seek to inculcate into our hearts. That you would drive away that sense of abandonment. Lord, Mary and Joseph could have felt abandoned by you that they had to give birth in such a terrible place. But we look back on this place and we say, there was a star overhead. That star led the wise men. Angels led the shepherds on the hillside. That place was filled with a heavenly light. Why? It didn't matter what was around. It didn't matter what was outside. The only thing that mattered was that Christ was there. Lord, give us the eyes to see that the only thing that matters is that Christ is there. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I want you to know today that the only thing that matters in your life is that Christ is there. And so I want to give you the opportunity today that if you have not opened your heart to him, if you have not opened your life to him, if you have not surrendered your soul to him, if you haven't invited him to come into your heart and to dwell with you there, I want to give you the invitation to do so today. That all you have to do is open your heart and invite him to come in. You can begin your walk with him. It doesn't require perfection. It simply, simply requires a decision. I wish to begin my walk with Christ today. And I'm going to pray a simple prayer right now. And if you pray this prayer with me, I'm going to invite you at the end of service to find someone, one of our leaders maybe. You could go to the information table or you can come here to the altar and tell me or one of our leadership team that I prayed that prayer today. That I invited Jesus to become my Lord and Savior today. That I began my walk with Him today. It's the most powerful decision that you could ever make. Father, as we gather in this place today, I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice. And I pray that our heart would become like that manger. That our hearts would open to receive the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. O holy child of Bethlehem, be born in us this day. Cast out our sin and enter in. Descend on us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Now, if your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, in your heart, just pray this prayer with me. Say, Father, I come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins to wash me and make me clean. Jesus, 
come into my heart. Make me your child and teach me to walk with you all the days of my life. I ask it in your holy name. Amen. Let's all stand.